Turn with me, please, to the first chapter of Matthew. Matthew gives us the genealogy of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he does so in Matthew and in Luke, and we'll consider something about these genealogies shortly. They're very important. Sometimes when you get to those genealogies that are in the Old Testament, they can, few of them, cover pages. Such and such begat, such and such begat, such and such begat, such and such, and on through pages. Name after name after name. It seems hundreds of them at times. Is that important? Very important, indeed. We have genealogies, that which comes particularly through Joseph in Matthew, and then in Luke, chapter 3, we have that which comes through Mary. A very important reason that we have these genealogies here. But we read in Matthew chapter 1, and verses 18 through 25, Now the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise, when as his mother Mary was espoused to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Ghost. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not willing to make her a public example, was minded to put her away privily. But while he thought on these things, Behold, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream, saying, Joseph, thou son of David, fear not to take unto thee Mary, thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. And she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Now all this was done, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child, and shall bring forth a son. And they shall call his name Emmanuel, which, being interpreted, is God with us. Then Joseph, being raised from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord had bidden him, and took unto him his wife, and knew her not till she had brought forth her firstborn son. And he called his name Jesus. Now, briefly, about genealogies. It was absolutely essential that those genealogies be preserved, that they be given. They, of course, all the way back to Adam. But then they bring us, of course, to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the 12 tribes of Israel. They give us those who were born in those tribes, uh, the families particularly that came out of those tribes. They come all the way down to certain families in those tribes. They come down, for instance, to the tribe of Judah. And then they come down to David, and they promised that through David, the Messiah would come. The promised one would come through him. The deliverer would come through David's line. And so, very important uh, that we have these genealogies as tedious as reading it seems maybe sometimes they're extremely important in scripture we have in the genealogy of Matthew 1 that which comes through Joseph 
Joseph, of course, was not the biological father of Jesus of Nazareth. She was conceived of the Holy Spirit, as we learn in Scripture. But Joseph and Mary consummated the line of David. You see, these genealogies in the Old Testament, you find many of them. When you get to the New Testament, you have that through Joseph, that through Mary. Consummated. The purpose of God has been completed when that takes place. The one who consummates the line of David takes place. And, of course, Joseph was the legal and rightful heir to the throne of David. And so, indeed, there would be the necessity that his genealogy be given. And, of course, we know that though as considered, Joseph was not the father of the Lord Jesus Christ, yet he would take him to be his legal son. That's a very important thing. He was adopted, if you please, by Joseph in the legal sense. And uh, he secured all of the status and the inheritance rights that were afforded to a biological son legally through Joseph. And uh, that was a legal thing that would take place. So it was necessary that the genealogy come through Joseph in that regard because his son in this regard, his adopted son, his legal son, would be the one who would then consummate that purpose through David. And on the other hand, of course, Mary was also of the house of David. And Mary, of course, was the one, the human vehicle, if you please, through whom God brought his son into the world. Her line was biologically to David. So, of course, she was through him. So uh, he... He must not only be the descendant of David, as Paul would say, of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, as he was through Mary, but also the legal heir to the throne that would come through Joseph. That's why those genealogies are incredibly important in Scripture. But we come now to consider something very important, some things very important that we may learn from this passage. Mary, of course, as we learn from Scripture in the first chapter of Luke, she would be visited by an angelic visitor. His name was Gabriel. Gabriel was sent to her, especially by God. And he would inform her that she was going to conceive and bear a son. The son's name would be Jesus. And as in Luke chapter 1, verse 34, she would ask a very reasonable question. How shall this be? Seeing I know not a man, how am I going to conceive a son? If I know not a man in this relationship. Of course, she was told how this wondrous birth would come about in Luke chapter 1 and verse 35. He said unto her, 
that she shall bear the Son of God. The Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore also that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. And what is wondrous is that in all this she immediately submitted to God. Be it according to thy word, she says to Gabriel. That was no little thing. She had quite a dilemma. Quite a dilemma. She was legally married to Joseph. They had not yet consummated the marriage. But they didn't simply get engaged like our culture. They were legally married. They had agreed, covenanted, legally married. But although they had not yet come together, and uh, yet they would not yet live together as husband and wife until the time later would come when, as the scripture says, he would take her into his home. Uh, marriage customs and marriage was different, always the same. There's covenant with God. There is the consummation of the marriage then. Those two things constitute marriage, of course, in Scripture. But in the Jewish society, there was a legal binding. There was legally a marriage. Only later would there be a consummation of the marriage. So, <clears throat> Joseph, unlike Mary was not yet told of the supernatural conception, she wouldn't tell him. He only found it out as our verse makes known in verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise when as his mother Mary was espoused to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Ghost. So she didn't tell Joseph. He didn't know. This was made known to him Especially. And so then it's no little thing to think of the strength of the faith of this young woman. No small thing, the faith that she exhibited. Her reputation was on the line. And the natural tendency, when things aren't what they seem to be, when it appears maybe you've done some great wrong, but actually you're innocent, what is the natural tendency? To vindicate yourself. To give plausible explanations. But obviously, Mary, in submission to God, committed the whole matter to him. Never said a word to Joseph. She knew full well that in this dilemma only God could solve it. Only God himself could vindicate her. She was with child. The child didn't belong to Joseph. So that the appearance would be that she was pregnant by another. But our present context really when you consider it, is more about Joseph's dilemma. Not only Mary's dilemma, but Joseph's dilemma. He was also a man, obviously, of very strong faith. Had this not been solved by divine intervention, 
he would have put away the woman he loved so much and the woman he still loved with a private bill of divorcement. And so our passage concerns both the miraculous birth of our Savior, of our Lord, and the way he would be taken into Joseph's home and taken by Joseph as his legal heir, which was absolutely necessary in order for him to be the legitimate and rightful heir of the throne of David. Remember, when you read the gospel according to Matthew, that this shows the Lord Jesus Christ and only he to be the fulfiller of the prophets and thus to be the promised Messiah. Of course, we have his unique birth here. In verse 18, again, now the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise when as his mother Mary was espoused to Joseph before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Ghost. This birth, it would be birth like none other. It would be a birth not before nor since would ever be. It was the birth of a unique person. Unique means there was none other birth like this. And he, being a unique person, means that this was one of a kind. So the Lord Jesus is called in Scripture the Son of God. He is called the only begotten of the Father. In a sense, in which none other could thus be called. It is said, it is said to be not because there was a time when he was not, because time is a relationship to creation. He was before time. Scripture, of course, says in Colossians 1.17, before all things. He was before creation. He was called by John the Apostle in 1 John 1, 2, that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested unto us. Long before, seven centuries before, in the prophecy of Micah that we're familiar with at this time of year, thou Bethlehem, Ephratah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me that is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting. In the Hebrew, that's the strongest word for eternity. And everlasting. He comes from eternity into time. He had the very same glory with the Father before the world. As he prayed in John 17, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. He had no beginning in Bethlehem. Only begotten signifies uniqueness in a sense that he is the only son of God by nature. That he possesses the same deity with the Father. He has the same attributes. The same glory belongs to him. 
His birth into the world could then only be a divine incarnation. As scripture says, God manifest in the flesh. So that we cannot begin to fathom the depth of the humility of the Son of God. The incredible humility of Christ is deeper than any human mind could ever begin to properly plumb. Intellectually or spiritually. For what belongs to him inherently, essentially, eternally, the glory that belongs to him as God the glory, not the deity, was put on. As one hymn writer put it, veiled in human flesh. Isaiah had declared in Isaiah 53, He shall grow it before him as a tender plant, and as a root out of a dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness, and when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected of men man of sorrows and acquainted with grief and we hid as it were our faces from him he was despised and we esteemed him not he didn't come as different in his figure than any other man he had no halo around his head there was no light streaming forth from him he came not in sinful flesh but in the likeness of sinful flesh he came in all points like as we are accepting sin he looked no different than any other human being. And yet he was God manifest in the flesh. The only ones who knew who he was were the angels. The angelic host who we read in Hebrews worshipped him when he came into the world. Only the angelic host knew more fully who he was and adoring him, wondering at what they saw. They burst forth to lowly shepherds, the very gospel, the glorious good news of what had happened in that little village of Bethlehem just a few miles from Jerusalem. There is born unto you this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And of course they burst out with glory to God in the highest. On earth peace. Goodwill toward men. Those shepherds would be the ones who would come to the manger. The manger where there were other lambs, if you please. The manger where the priests in Jerusalem sometimes would have those shepherds obviously bring those lambs that they had set apart for sacrifice. Those lambs that were without blemish and without spot and prepared for sacrifice. No marvel that God purposed his son to be born in the manger where those shepherds obviously had brought sheep. And they beheld the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. There was something absolutely unique in the Lord's human birth. He alone, of 
all that have ever been born in this human race, all that have come into this world, all who shall ever come into this world, there was something absolutely unique that belongs to him alone. He was born without a sin nature. Just as Gabriel said to Mary, that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. Years ago, I read something that clicked pretty well. William Hendrickson, he relayed the story of an unbeliever who asked a, a, a believer this question. If I should tell you that a child was born in this city without a father, would you believe it? The reply came, of course, yes, if he should live as Jesus lived. No one else ever came into this world without a sin nature. Everyone else born in sin. That's a wondrous thing. He alone without sin. Follow him through his life. Follow him through his course of mercies. Follow him through his love for men. Follow him through his absolutely holy walk in this world. Follow him in his perfect submission to his Father. Follow him all the way to the cross and the empty grave. No sin in him. He was manifested to take away our sins. And in him is no sin. From ancient times, in instituting the old covenant sacrificial system, it was made clear that only one kind of sacrifice for sin would be accepted. That was a lamb without spot and without blemish. The Lord Jesus Christ had no sin. The sinless Savior, who alone could offer the one eternal sacrifice, that would remove the sins of his believing people. We have a unique birth. We have a unique situation. We have one who is unique. We have one who is the son of the living God. And if we have this, un, uh, this unique situation... This unusual situation. We have also in our passage an unusual man in Joseph. We read in verses 18 through 21. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise. When as his mother Mary was espoused to Joseph before they came together. She was found with child of the Holy Ghost. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not willing to make her a public example, was minded to put her away privily. But while he thought on these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream, saying, Joseph, thou son of David, fear not to take unto thee Mary, thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. And she shall bring forth a son, 
And thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Well, before we look particularly more at Joseph, consider the kind of faith that was in Mary, the kind of faith that submitted to God instead of taking matters into her own hands, the kind of faith that is exemplified in her. Very young was she. And yet, what a strong woman of faith. She's given the greatest blessing that a woman could ever be given. She's called blessed among women. And yet, this blessing came with the appearance of the greatest shame a woman could bear. Blessed among women. And yet with the appearance of such shame. She didn't tell Joseph that she was visited by an angel named Gabriel. She didn't tell Joseph that he told me that though we have not yet consummated our marriage and though I'm a virgin, that I would bear a son whose name would be called Jesus and that this son would be conceived in me by the Holy Spirit. She didn't tell Joseph about those things. She never mentioned it to him. She didn't go to Joseph. When we read in the scripture, we find out where she went. She went to the house of John the Baptist's mother, Elizabeth's house. John the Baptist was born six months before the Lord Jesus Christ. Of course, he would say, but he was before me. Of course, he was the eternal one who'd come. She would not try to defend herself totally against that which is nature or natural. But when people are innocent or accused of something, they vigorously defend, defend themselves against whatever particular charge there might be. But she didn't try to defend herself. She knew it was impossible for her to do so. And she knew that only God could make known the truth of what had happened to her. Our passage then reveals how Joseph's great dilemma, when seeing Mary with child, but a child not his own, had that dilemma solved and completely put to rest. That's no little thing. If you please, that is one of the great proof marks of the virgin birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. Little often considered, this action of Joseph is a strong evidence of the actual virgin birth of our Lord. This young woman that Joseph loved so much, this young woman who had pledged herself to him in a legal bond to be his wife, was found with child. It was not her, it was not his child. We can only imagine when he learned this what must have entered into his heart. Here was a man who had to have been crushed. 
when he learned this news. It must have twisted his very soul. Yet he still loves Mary. He still had a love for her. That love was still intact. And our text reveals that he didn't hate her for what appeared she had done to him. But out of the fear of God, he would do the least thing. As in verse 20. Verse 19 and 20. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not willing to make her a public example, was minded to put her away privily. But while he thought on these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream, saying, Joseph, thou son of David, fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. It was the fear in him that belonged to what the scripture calls in verse 19 a just man a just man that moves the heart and its highest principle to act in accordance with the will of God the God who takes very seriously the breaking of the marriage vow at the same time this crushing realization hits Joseph. Light is thrown upon his character. Again in verse 19. Then, then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not willing to make her a public example, was minded to put her away privily. And if his character is revealed in the way that he deals with Mary, it also shows of no little importance the kind of man to whom God would entrust his son. Can you imagine that? The son of God brought into this world would be committed to him and to his care. And we have something revealed about his character in scripture. Joseph was a just man. He was one who was governed by and would act upon the principles of righteousness. But it would not be harsh, judgmental, self-righteousness. This kind of righteousness is not natural to man. It's not in man by nature. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Man by nature is completely self-centered. Even in relationships with people. Man is centered in self. That's what took place in the fall. The natural tendency is to defend self. If something like that had happened among those who were not just in the sense that said about Joseph, my, what horrendous things would take place. Those who have this kind of inward righteousness get that only from God. It doesn't come by nature. It comes in the new birth. Paul in Ephesians 4 speaks of being created in righteousness and true holiness. Joseph obviously was a man who had been born of God. This also tells us that Joseph believed God. 
He believed God like Abraham believed God. He believed God like David believed God, of whom he was of his line. And through that faith, he trusted God to fulfill the messianic promise of a coming redeemer, the hope of all the world, the coming of one who would deliver from sin, the coming of one who would bring men to God again, the coming redeemer. So we would have a righteousness that was imputed and in its principle to those who have it imputed through faith alone. But those who have an actual imputed righteousness through faith in Christ also by new birth have an imparted righteousness that created in righteousness and true holiness. He knew, believed, Messiah would come. He looked for him and trusted and believed the word of God. But there was something he didn't know. He didn't know that that very Redeemer, that that very Messiah was in the virgin womb of his espoused wife. That he didn't know. <laughs> and in choosing the lesser of the two ways that were open to him for the putting away of Mary, he chose the private way rather than the public way of doing that. And preciously, an old expositor put it this way, to put her away was the only course possible, though it racked his soul. And to do it privily was the last gift his wounded love could give her. Joseph would never have taken Mary into his home as his wife and then refrained from the marriage bed with her until after the birth of the Lord Jesus unless he was without any doubt absolutely convinced that the child that was conceived in her womb was by no man but by the Holy Ghost. This is no little thing. It is a huge mark, an evidential mark of the highest degree that indeed the Lord Jesus Christ was conceived in the womb and brought forth through the womb of a virgin. We read then in verses 20 and 21. But while he thought on these things, oh, what must have been going through his mind, while he thought on these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream, saying, Joseph, thou son of David, fear not to take unto thee Mary, thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. And she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. And, of course, this fulfilled prophecy, as in verses 24 and 25. Then Joseph, being raised from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord had bidden him, and took unto him his wife, and knew her not 
till she had brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus. Joseph had no doubt, completely convinced by God through an angelic messenger that this is the woman who has fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah 7.14. A virgin shall conceive and bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Emmanuel. So we shall see in a few words a meaning then greater than we could ever begin to expound upon and uh, one that yet is fuller than we can completely take in in all of its meaning and all of the branches of its meaning. And here we shall but briefly consider what to this point Matthew has shown. He's given solid proof of beyond any true shadow of a doubt that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that in believing, trusting him, who came to die the death for sin that belongs to others, who came to recover us to God, that he has given us the wondrous gift in him of eternal life. And that he that hath the Son hath life. And he that hath not the Son of God hath not life. And as John would write later, in believing this, we may have the assurance of eternal life. The Lord Jesus Christ, quote, of the seed of David according to the flesh, as Paul would write in Romans. He was made of a woman. He derived his human nature from Mary. He has a legal right to the throne of David because he is the adopted son of Joseph as in the Jewish culture as much right as if he had been a biological son thus the genealogy of Joseph who the angel called son of David heir to all the rights of the house of David this makes the Lord Jesus Christ the rightful heir of David. Here, that promise has its fulfillment. Messiah, Christ, was promised to come through David, through the house of David. The Lord hath sworn in truth unto David. He will not turn from it. Of the fruit of thy body will I set upon thy throne, as in Psalm 132, verse 11. That Christ, who as the Old Testament clearly makes known, as well as the New Testament, is from everlasting, was to come into the world through the womb of a virgin, as was prophesied 700 years before. The prophet seeing is simply being the instrument through whom God himself would speak, and it's fulfilled in the Son of Mary as again in verses 24, or 22, and uh, 23. Now all this was done, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, 
Behold, a virgin shall be with child and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. We have the interpretation given by Matthew, of course, but that's the meaning of Emmanuel. There's another prophecy that's not mentioned here, but referred to by the angel Gabriel to Mary, expressly declaring, as we read from it this morning when opening the service, that Christ, the Messiah, would be, quote, the mighty God. The mighty God. Confirming that he's none other than Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. When Gabriel comes to Mary, he declares the fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and peace. There shall be no end upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. When Gabriel comes and tells young Mary, the virgin, that she's going to bear the Son of God through the conception that will come by the work of God's Holy Spirit, he says in referring to that prophecy, He shall be great and shall be called the son of the highest. And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David and he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom. There shall be no end. That Joseph, beyond all human reason, would take Mary into his home after learning that she was with a child that was not his without question being convinced that Mary had conceived miraculously by the Holy Spirit, fully adopting the Lord Jesus Christ as his legal son, is another firm proof, another firm proof that this child born to Mary was indeed the Son of God. And Matthew is only beginning to show the fulfillment of prophecy here. When we study Matthew, when we read Matthew, prophecy after prophecy after prophecy is being fulfilled. Promises after promises are fulfilled. We read over and over again, and it came to pass, just as God had promised. And what the Lord Jesus Christ said about himself was, Search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. Even all those long lists of genealogies have reference to his coming. Consummate in his appearing. All of scripture testifies to him. Prophecy after prophecy multiple prophecies referenced in Matthew's gospel so that only a sin-darkened heart will not receive the truth that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And what we know 
is that by nature, by natural intellect alone, no one will come to Christ. No one will come to him by nature. No matter how clear the evidence, no matter how clear the presentation of the gospel, no matter how aptly it may be declared, no one by nature will come to Christ. They might come to religion. They might come to a prayer. They might come to some physical act, but they cannot by nature come to Christ and will not. We'll not give up the thought of all merit and trust him alone for salvation from sin and truth except those whom God effectually calls by his gospel. But those whom God calls to Christ, those who in repentance from sin and a singular faith in Jesus Christ crucified and him alone, will see by faith they will come and that will be because of one thing. God in great mercy, in incredible sovereign love, chose them to do so. Purposed them to do so. Before the world began and works in them by his grace. That's why Paul could say to the Thessalonians, we're bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord, because God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the spirit and belief of the truth, whereunto he called you by our gospel to the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. When God calls, when the sinner is brought to know that they're separate from God by sin, that judgment is a reality, and they're heading that way, and it's inescapable. But God comes and shows that his very son was sent to stand between them and that judgment and to take their sins and to reconcile them to God. That's the most glorious day of life. And in God's grace, the Son of God comes to live in one by the Spirit. It's glorious. Glorious indeed. Yep. Joseph took Mary into his home refrained from the marriage bed until after the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. Then they had other children. She was not a perpetual virgin as taught in Roman Catholicism. They had other children. But only after the birth of the Savior. And what a glorious thing. We don't know how long Joseph lived. It would be apparent that by the time of the cross he had already died. We read no more about him, but uh, we don't know when or whatever time. But we know that he took the Lord Jesus Christ into his home. He took him in his arms. He took him into his heart. And if you come to him in truth and you take him into your heart, because God has been so gracious to you to give you the greatest gift ever given if you get nothing else and you have Christ you have everything everything if you have everything in this world whatever it affords to you but have not Christ guess what you really have 
nothing. It's all empty. But we have him. We have the greatest gift ever given. God gave his son. That you and I, by the grace of God, would come to know the glory of a redeeming love that will spend eternity trying to find out the depths concerning. May God bless the ministry of his holy word.